This is Ashley Asti, and welcome to I'm Curious Podcast. My guest today, Alina Anjum Ahmed, is fiery and passionate and determined, but I feel like her, her fire and her force has been hard won in some ways. The very first time Alina was assaulted, she was six years old. Pakistan, where she grew up, is, she told me, a very, very patriarchal country, and not having the words or a safe space to understand what happened to her, it took her until she was in her early 20s to start realizing the full scope of the abuse that had been so normalized. Today, Alina is a graduate student. She's here in the United States for a brief while on a Fulbright scholarship, and she's changing the way women, especially women in Pakistan, understand violence by bringing them together in listening circles where they can feel seen and heard and really have the language and the tools to start understanding their own trauma. And Alina advocates for transformative justice. Like I said, I just really like her spirit and her sense of her own power to create change and of her own responsibility. And I can't wait to continue watching her grow and seeing what she does in the world. So let's dive in. All right, I guess I guess we should do it. We just dive in. You ready? Let's do it. Alina, I am so grateful to have you here. As I was just saying, yeah, I'm, I, you're doing a little cheer dance. People can't see in the background. We've been looking forward to this conversation. And last time you and I spoke just on the phone, we were teasing that. I want to fangirl over you. You were saying nice things about me. So we're going to try not to fangirl throughout the whole episode. <laughs> I just want to get that out of the way that we both really like each other and support what you, each other's doing in the world, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, I'm so honored that you're joining me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Uh, So as I often do in these podcasts, I'm going to go, we're going to start backwards, going to a little bit of your beginnings. Now, I believe, did you grow up in Pakistan? Is that true? Yes, I did. I did. I I grew up in uh, Lahore, which is a big city in Pakistan. And I moved here just eight months ago in January. Oh, wow. Uh, So it's really new. Yeah, for grad school. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through the Fulbright Scholarship. So I'll be going back next year in May. Okay. (laughs) Well, good for you. And a Fulbright, that's wonderful. So when you, like, give me sort of, like, the sense of your childhood. What was it like? What were you like as a child? I was a weird kid. Oh, my God. (laughs) Weird I was super, like, I mean, I, I also saw, like, there was a, because I grew up with a lot of insecurities as well. Um, it's not a very conducive culture to just embracing yourself. And mm. it's, it's very critical sometimes, especially with women. So uh, I grew up in a very strict household, like a very strict religious household. So we weren't allowed to wear certain kinds of clothes. We weren't allowed to talk to boys. <laughs> I remember the first time I went out to eat um, with my friends, just like to go to a restaurant or something, was in my undergrad, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, um, as in uh, with with, with a group that actually had men in it as well. Um, And I wasn't allowed to visit my male friends' homes or they weren't allowed to come over until the latter part of my undergraduate degree. So it was, it was interesting, it was interesting. As a kid, I was like super creative and super like, oh, I want to be a writer when I grew up, like, because I used to be really into writing. 
So in my undergrad, I actually worked with a publishing company for three years. Wow. It was great. Yeah, it was great. I was an interesting, weird little kid. Very inquisitive. Um, like, like very, very inquisitive. Like, I, I remember asking my father at the age of, what, six or seven about predestination in Islam. Oh, wow. <laughs> and saying, oh, so if, you know, God is all-knowing, then how can you believe in predestination and free will? And doesn't that kind of conflict? And weird questions like that. And he was like, shut up. No, we're not, we're not talking about that. So those are weird questions, like yeah. super weird questions. But I I mean, maybe that's why I'm in philosophy right now in grad school. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that doesn't surprise me. That makes sense, given like a, a little of what I know about you. And, you know, the fact that you weren't able to go to a restaurant with boys until you were in your undergrad. Was there a curiosity? Did you feel like you were missing out on something or, you know, like when something's not oh, allowed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yes. Because I would see all of my friends like going out and stuff like that. And they all had boyfriends. And A, I was like always a very insecure kid. Never thought I was beautiful or whatever. I mean, such a lie. Look at me. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that for yourself. But I was absolutely going to add it like gorgeous. Yeah. Thank you. No, but like, um, I mean, it's, it's a weird culture. So women have to struggle with a lot of insecurities as well. Um, so it was weird because I always like, oh, I wish I had, you know, a partner or like, I wish I had male friends and I felt like I was missing out. Plus also we consumed a lot of like American television growing up. I was up, wondering, yeah. Right? So we, I, I'm, uh, I, I think we're about the same age. So we probably watched the same cartoons, maybe yeah. like Cars the Cavity Dog and Kids Next Door and all that sort of stuff. And like weird cartoons like that. And also the movies. So we would always watch like these Disney movies with all these girls having partners. And I'm like, but why can't we have that but of course the culture is different so it did feel a little bit like we were missing out Mm. yeah yeah okay uh so speaking of that I'm wondering how was being a woman how was being female modeled like womanhood modeled to you growing up and the women around you so um I'm gonna be this is going to be a little long-winded of an answer so bear with me uh, so my mother and my father have been working since they were both in the 20s for their entire life. They're both retired now, but they earn equally and they've always supported the household equally. So much so that at one point in time after my father retired, my mother was the sole or the primary bread, bread winner mm-hmm. for the or bread earner for the family. Um, so in that regard, my mother kind of um, did shy away from or shed away from like the traditional gender roles of the woman Mm -hmm. staying at home but at the same time she was also very happy with those roles so when she would come Mm -hmm. back after she was a professor so she was a a professor of economics who taught at one of the uh, public sector universities and colleges in Lahore Um, she was head of the department at her Mm -hmm. college she was also vice principal there so it was like a like a thing she was a career woman from the get-go but when she would come back, she would cook and like she would do all those household jobs as well. And my dad didn't. Um, so the gender roles were very consistent, like mm. despite the fact that my mother did stray away from them in terms of being a career woman, she still also liked them. And I remember uh, even now, actually, like 20 minutes ago, I was talking to my mom and she was like, oh, there's such a nice picture of you. It could be a Rishta picture. And Rishta is like a arranged marriage. <laughs> So the photo for an arranged marriage proposal, like if you send it to somebody else. And I was like, I'm 24 turning 25. I'm too young to get married right now. Like I want to do this. She's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? (laughs) Even though she got married at 28. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Buck the trend there. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, 
that makes no sense. My father was 30 something, you were 20 something, 28 something when you got married. So why am I being pushed into marriage earlier? So the gender roles have always been like very strict. Um, I mean, my brother, wonderful feminist young man, uh, older than me, but I love him and I raised him to be a feminist. Um, <laughs> he would go out late at night, like three in the morning to meet his friends. And I had to be back by like 7 p.m. Wow. Yeah. Right. And it was like, and if it's a concern about safety, then you also know that he should be safe and going out yeah. at three in the morning on, in his car is not probably the safest. But yeah, it was a little, not a little, it was very patriarchal. Pakistan is a very, very patriarchal country with a lot of violence against women, a lot of like unfortunate gender roles and restrictions. Uh, one of the highest illiteracy rates amongst women as well. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it's a different place, very different mm. place. And you said earlier you wanted to be a writer growing up that was same as me. So I, I connect to that. Really? Um, I'm wondering if you, so it seems like from being a little girl, you had aspirations to perhaps break out of that patriarchal system or out of the gender norms. Did you feel that growing up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I have never not been a feminist I think <laughs> it's weird because the word feminist was never in our vocabulary I think I started learning about feminism in like college maybe yeah. or something but it was always like a thing it was always just like my views were always just weird and that's not because of just the person that I am I think it had a lot to do with other factors like I read a lot right mm. um I used to enjoy reading and I used to like read all sorts of different things all sort of like fictional works and stuff so it was always weird for me when people would look at like women as inferior I was like that doesn't necessarily make sense to me so even before it was in my vocabulary I remember being a feminist mm. that's I I kind of figured I was also I mean obviously we grew up differently or different cultures but I read a lot and so from being a really little kid I was I was always like, well, I'm a woman and I like myself. So I'm a feminist. Yes. <laughs> I just was ingrained and you read stories of women, whether women that were doing beautiful things or purposeful things in the world or women who had been held back from that. And so I felt an innate sense of like, that's wrong, right? Did you feel yeah. Did you right? ever read Little Women growing up? Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> it's one of my favorite books, right? And yes. Joe was like my hero. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Strong woman there. Yes. Young woman, yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I guess you had mentioned that because we're going to, you know, move into some of the, the work that you've done as you've gotten older, um, although you're still so young and, and, and have done so much. Growing up, were you aware of, of the violence or harassment against women that was happening around you? So, uh, unfortunately, uh, I know that in American culture and Western culture, the birds and bees talk is pretty common or at least parents teach these things in Pakistan that's not the case I mean the new generation of parents are doing that but not necessarily you know my parents are in their 60s almost 70 so that's a very different generation like very very mm -hmm. different generation and we never got that talk we never got to know what good Dutch bad Dutch is we never got to know like what harassment and assault etc is um, but trigger warning for you and also for those who are listening uh, the first time I was uh, assaulted, I was thinking I was six. Wow. And it was within my own house. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, with a, a, another girl um, who was older than me. I don't think she was 18. I think she was also a young girl. Which is kind of what started my journey towards transformative justice as well. I think that's 
like hopefully we'll talk about that later Absolutely, so i don't want to yeah. bring it in right now um but these are just not things that we 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 talk about uh mm-hmm. i grew up around a lot like i knew about abuse mm-hmm. all around me i could see it in my own family members extended or otherwise um in just like tv shows it would casually show again trigger warning uh casually show somebody slapping a woman and then that woman forgiving them without like mm. so much as a not even forgiving like forgiveness wasn't even a thing it was like oh she deserved it and like mm. really 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 disgusting tropes like that in the media all around us and it was hard to we didn't really give it a word of the word of violence until much later but somehow we were always aware um that that was happening and as i grew up i realized that people very close to me have been assaulted in their like in their childhoods mm-hmm. and they just didn't have the words for it i didn't know what had happened to me until i was 21 or 20 because yeah. that's when you're when you have the trauma kind of comes back and you have to work through it and therapy and all that and it was it was a long journey mm-hmm. and i wonder if actually i don't even wonder if i'm certain that a lot of women who have been abused or have had violence committed against them don't even know because they're so used to it and because they think it's so normal. Thank you for sharing that. I, I was wondering that too like when you're a child and you know said good touch bad touch or someone does something to you in a way that's not appropriate in in terms of touching or violence do you do you have a sense even though it's so normalized like this doesn't make sense to you like why someone would treat you that way or it just seems so common that you you don't question it even at 6. I don't know. So for me I just thought it was a, it's a little weird but like I don't know right What's happening? so i'm just going to whatever like blank out but i have spoken to a lot of survivors part of my work with the organization that i began with my co-founder was to speak with survivors and to give them the opportunity to heal um a lot of them didn't know because it just was never i think i think for children especially they're so vulnerable and they just they're going to know what you tell them right their primary source of knowledge is you as a caretaker and if you don't tell them that this is weird it's hard for them to rely on their own instincts especially very very young kids mm-hmm. not to say that kids don't have good instincts they absolutely do and a lot of kids have recognized that something was weird about what's happening but if they're sheltered away from this language and this discourse right. completely then they won't know then they'll just think it's this is a caretaker and somebody in authority and i mean i trust them with my safety and yeah yeah it it gets really normalized very quickly mm. so i guess when you're in college or you're 21 you start moving into your 20s and start understanding a little bit more what was what happened to you and what perhaps was happening to other women and it sounds like you started either reaching out actively or or being confronted with or faced with other women sharing similar stories can you talk about how that started to happen so um I began volunteering for the Women's March. I don't know if you can see these posters over here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're for the annual Women's March in Lahore. Um, it's called Aurat March. March being the Women's March and Aurat being the Urdu word for woman. And I started helping them out, and I met amazing women there. And there was this one chat that we were all a part of where this random girl just messaged, "Hey, so I I wrote this poem. It went viral. It was about the chadar, which is like um." kind of like a veil it's like a long piece of cloth that you cover yourself with and how we're told that that's going to protect us and our dignities and our honor or whatever but it 
doesn't because violence is so ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And I just remember messaging her and be like, hey, I would love to help you with this. And then we be- just started hanging out and like meeting. And she was from another country, but she was in Pakistan at the time. And we met up, we talked and um, we just started doing the work that we were doing. We raised some funds. I applied for a fellowship, got into the fellowship, got a grant, started working with survivors. And the goal was always that, um, going back to the previous question you asked and the answer I gave, if people don't have the language and the tools necessary to recognize something as being violent and abusive, then they never will. So part of how you educate people, and I I don't like the word education because it makes makes it seem like I know more than other Mm -hmm. people. I don't necessarily believe that at all. I just feel like deliberate creation of ignorance in especially women um, ensures that perpetrators get away with what they want to get away with. And part of the reason we wanted to create a safe space with all survivors was instead of getting that knowledge from like weird books and manuals and TV shows or just random people that you don't know, how about survivors get together and share it and then in a safer space, hopefully without re-triggering each other or triggering us to the extent that we're unable to function, equip ourselves with the language and tools to not just recognize violence for what it is, but also to start the journey of healing that's how kind of how the organization started yeah there's a bunch of things we'll pick up on as as we go but talking about survivors coming together I feel like those are spaces where we heal when we're in community it's so much harder when you heal when you try to heal in isolation um but going back and is it Chadar how do you say it Chadar Chadar (laughs) um so again, you said it's sort of like a veil, long piece of clothing, perhaps that's a covering. And is the intention, like, is it taught as an intention of like, this will protect you? Or what, what's the intention behind it? So uh, religiously, the burqa, the hijab, the niqab, different iterations of that over the years have come up, which just say that women should protect themselves and cover themselves, which is modesty. And um, some cultures, like the culture in Pakistan, considers it part of their honor and dignity as well. Um but another cultural part of that is that, you know, it's a way to protect yourself. Right? It's a way to, the more covered up you are, the safer you are because then people can't see you and then nobody will harm you and stuff. And it's also a way to kind of slut shame survivors because if you're wearing like, sedu- not even seductive, but provocative clothing, but provocative clothing is very different from what you might be thinking. It's like jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah. Or like jeans and a like a long, longer shirt that covers. And even up. if it were so quote unquote provocative, that's not an excuse for someone exactly. to commit harm against someone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's the the idea, right? Right. So this rhetoric is used against survivors who don't necessarily follow the the dress code that a lot of religious people would like for them to follow. But the reality is that even that dress code doesn't prevent you from getting harmed. So the point of the poem that my co-founder wrote was to kind of help people understand that A, don't slut shame me or don't victim blame me. Mm-hmm. And B, I know what you're trying to say and I respect the religious values that you subscribe to, but that doesn't mean that this piece of, piece of cloth is going to save me from being harmed, which is why you need to look at the actual causes of it. It's not my clothes, it's your mentality that's mm. the problem. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned, I guess on, on your website, that a little bit of that poem and how when... Ayesha wrote about it, it sort of awakened this 
uh, and you wrote dying conversation regarding clothing, honor, and violence in communities of color. So yeah, take me a little bit deeper inside that conversation. When her or when her poem went viral, or when you start having these safe spaces to talk about it, what was coming up for you and the other women or survivors you connected with? Yeah, it was hard. Um, I actually initially did it three times a week, but I couldn't because it's so taxing. Like, and mm. also it's not just it's not just the emotional labor that goes into it. It's also the fact that I can't go in just unprepared, right? I need yeah. to know how I can provide space. So I ended up doing facilitation trainings. I ended up seeking coaching from other people because I'm not going to go in there being irresponsible. If people are going to trust me with their stories, I need to be there um, to either diffuse or to help them heal or just to, just to navigate the conversation better. And I always like started with saying that, hey, listen, I am not a th therapist, nor will I ever be a therapist. Um, and I don't expect anyone to come into this space seeking therapy. But I recognize the importance of survivors coming together and acknowledging each other's truth. I don't think people realize the power in acknowledging your own truth and having it validated by other people. Mm. Because we're so used, I know I blamed myself for years. Um, whoever's listening to this please don't blame yourself it was not your fault at all you are not to blame um, but yeah it took me so many years and even now I struggle with it I'm not ashamed to say it it's part of just the culture that we grew up in and even now here in a different culture there's victim blaming everywhere and you internalize it and I still blame myself sometimes and that's very unhealthy so part of that space was to create like this dialogue that hey the second you get into victim blaming, let's gently nudge you away from it and validate your truth and tell you that, hey, no, you were you were done hard to. You're not in the wrong here. Um, but what did come into, like, because uh, Aisha, when she wrote that poem, was just very, and I don't want to speak for her, so I'll just speak of what she told me. Um, she was just disappointed by the fact that people don't realize how, prevalent they, these issues are and they they're so quick to assume that it's your fault um mm. and when she wrote that poem and it went viral and she realized oh wait I'm not alone in this there are a lot of women especially Muslim women who face these issues and they're constantly told that you know they're to blame and they're they should have covered themselves x y and z somehow um and that's not the case at all and when we actually did the listening circles we did them twice a week because that was the only thing I could manage. And then eventually, because the conflict issues started happening with different survivors who wanted to join, so we ended up combining the circles. So it would only be once a week. Um, we had people like come in who would just say, like, I look forward to this every week. Mm. Like, I don't care where I am. I just, I, I know if I can't even turn my camera on. And it, I'm so sorry. This is like going tangential sometimes, but I'm going to No, please keep going. Yeah. Um, I, I, we don't have a rule of turning your camera on in the conversation at all. Like if you just want to come in, my camera will be on at all times. So you can see me. So you can feel like you're part of something in which somebody's actually reacting to what you're saying. But if I remember hosting a listening circle after a very horrible incident in Pakistan, I think 30 people came, none of them had their cameras on. Um, or, and then one more person came and I think they had their camera on, but that was it, just, just the two of us. And it was fine. I don't, I don't mind whatever you're comfortable with. If you want to come into this space and just listen in, sure. If you want to come into the space and just speak for five minutes, that's fine. 
If you want to come into the space and just do a couple of the exercises that I normally do in the beginning, that's fine as well. I don't mind. Mm-hmm. Just know that this space is for you and that you f- are going to be safe here. Um, some people actually just came to offer support to others. Wow. Some survivors would literally just come every single week on the dot mm-hmm. just to su- support other people. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing to me because I'd never seen that kind of space before. Mm. Unfortunately, when grad school started, I had to take a break. Um, Understandable. Yeah. Give yourself that grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really hope it gets, I get back to it soon. Yeah. I, I think part of what you're describing speaks to the power of feeling heard and feeling oh, yeah. seen, right? That that's healing. That And I'm wondering also, because I mean, this is something you're talking about, the victim blaming. This is not, you know, just Pakistan this like we have everywhere. This everywhere this is why the me too movement was so uh, such mm-hmm. a big thing because so many women were like me too and and hadn't felt they could it was safe to speak that before so do you find that because even here like we have lots of in this culture perhaps or you know you can have options for lots of women friendships right or but mm-hmm. or in Pakistan but with it just that was something that just couldn't be talked about there despite perhaps connections between women yeah, uh, that's an interesting question because I have thought about this and I've never really had a solid answer because I don't know why it happens that even in women's spaces, it doesn't naturally just come up yeah. that you talk about this. It has a lot to do with the culture of shame. Mm. Um, it has a lot to do with the culture of blaming ourselves and also others. It also has a lot of to, to do with the fact that we don't have the words for it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just a, combination of so many different factors and it, it it really 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 disappoints me to the core that the only way that these conversations can happen is if spaces are deliberately created for it um it's never just that people feel not never i'm sure it happens it's very rare that it, like women just share their their trauma or their their histories or whatever has happened to them with other women that they trust or other folks that they trust. Um, yeah, it's, I'm also trying to catch myself because I'm noticing I'm only saying women, yeah, um, me too. <laughs> which is unfortunate because I, I recognize that trans folks, non-binary people, uh, gender and sexual minorities are probably the most vulnerable in Pakistan yeah. after. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. It's hard because even in Urdu, we don't have a lot of words for gender minorities, which is unfortunate. So the linguistic barriers create such a problem that even in this conversation, I'm having a hard time communicating that, you know, it's not just women. There are no spaces for queer folks. There's no spaces for trans people or non-binary people in particular. Um, and that gets hard, even, even if you have the strongest friendships combination of the the shame the victim blaming and the linguistic issues makes it really hard for these conversations to happen naturally mm, and and lacking that language especially for people who are non-binary trans queer must feel like even more a sense of not belonging and and, and oh. right uh, and I, I'm thinking about Brene Brown who's a shame and vulnerability researcher and she talks about like a huge part of her work is not necessarily coming up with something new, but putting a name to something. It could be uh-huh. something that someone have, you know, she hopes that she puts language on something that 
people go, oh my God, yes, I, I've experienced that. I know that. So she's not trying to invent something new, just giving people the tools. Cause sometimes once you can name it in language, it, there's a power to it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it also comes back to, I think, validation and legitimizing because the second you have a word for something, it's real. Mm, yeah. like, otherwise it's abstract and it's like maybe maybe not but when you have a word for something you're like oh that that's what happened that's what this is and then it's easier for you to kind of reckon with it maybe too mm-hmm. um and also to seek help so yeah. I agree completely having a word for things really helps mm, yeah and so these, these these listening circles I guess I have a few questions but how have they Personally, how have they impacted you? How have they shifted you just being part of this and leading and getting to listen? Ooh, um, <laughs> I was actually never a very good listener, mm-hmm. ever. Um, I would talk a lot as a kid. Yeah. Part of the inquisitive nature is the constant I get talking. that, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I still talk a lot, actually. But <laughs> when I realized that this was something that had to be done, Part of the reason why I wanted to get specifically trained in facilitation was to learn how to be a better listener. Mm. Because I recognize, because I knew that survivors deserve that. Um, that was one big change that I think I saw. I think my listening kind of improved. It still has a long way to go. And mm. I, am, I am happy to continue working on it. But I'm not going to lie, it was hard because... I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to betray someone's trust. I didn't want them to face any more harm than they already have in this space that I was creating, um, which which was hard because sometimes people would say something that was very harsh and I would have to stop them and say, no, listen, like you need to realize that this is going to harm other folks. So maybe we can gently sit away from it. And that was also, it's a journey. I would say mm-hmm. it's a long journey. It's also exhausting because- yeah there's a lot of compassion fatigue involved Mm -hmm. because you feel so much and there's there's hardly anything you can do as a facilitator of those conversations because again I'm not directing those conversations I'm just facilitating them Mm -hmm. survivors are just coming in and talking to each other and just creating that sense of community so it's it's it was hard I remember I remember I would have like days where I would just I mean, our listening cycle would end at eight. And normally I'm somebody who sleeps like two or three in the morning because I'm a night owl. And I would just have to sleep after that because my brain was just like, oh, wow, how do I, can I do this? I mean, a lot of imposter syndrome too. Like, am I even worthy of people sharing these things in my presence? Do I have the capability of creating this space? Is this even a good idea? Am I harming people or helping them, right? It was so exhausting that I would just, deliberately forced myself to just pass out for the next 10 hours because I couldn't think about it but also I realized that I'm happy not happy but I'm I'm willing to make mistakes or at least learn from them because I would much rather create that space and work on it to make it better over time than to abandon it um, especially if it helps even one person Mm. I feel like it's also that balance between you have knowing you have this sense of responsibility and who you are yeah. and what you've learned and a responsibility to yourself. Like, I'm, I'm glad that you've taken some time, you know, starting grad school to be like, I need to put the listening circles on pause. I need to focus on me. Cause I think your compassion and your service has to be sustainable. 
Um, Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I imagine that's something you're you're grappling with on this journey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, so if anybody's actually interested in what you just said um, about sustainability, mm -hmm. there's an organization called Circles International run by an amazing human being. Mm -hmm. And they do good work on teaching activists to be sustainable, teaching yeah. activists to heal themselves first. Yes. Teaching activists to create a community of care amongst other activists. Mm -hmm. It's so needed. Everyone can go out there and help other people. Everyone can be an activist. And people are, I think, literally, people don't even realize that they're activists yeah. because they don't use that word for themselves. I think uh -huh. you're an activist. Yeah. I think the fact that you're creating this podcast is activism in a lot of different ways, right? Um, but activists forget about themselves and they don't take care of themselves. So that organization helps you take care of yourself, be sustainable, create an, you know, accountability amongst the community, create just spaces where you can just be yourself and heal and take care of yourself and I love it I love it I met this person um through a fellowship and they are brilliant brilliant so if anybody would be interested in checking out their work I would highly recommend it mm, I'm, I'm grateful that you shared that and I also think you're getting to this idea that we all have a role like activism doesn't have to look one way I always talk about for me I thought to be an activist I had to be leading the protest and the one that's like the front of the protest with the sign or the megaphone but my version of activism is going to look different than yours and look different yes. than the person's next to it and we all have probably a unique angle and what we feel called to like where your heart's passion and like what the world is longing for me yes absolutely it's also like a visibility politics, right? We've seen mm -hmm. the only kind of protests on social media and media being like, oh, the, the long marches and things like that. But there's so much happening behind the scenes. I'm, uh, I wish I could, uh, I don't know if I'm, if I should say their name, but I'll just say there's an abolitionist reading circle mm -hmm. run by amazing people. And they do work behind the scenes. They're not very visible, nothing fancy, nothing, you know, mm -hmm. that you'll see ads for but they are working with incarcerated human beings. They're giving them a community to speak to other people outside, um, helping people come out of that imprisonment, having hardcore beliefs of prison abolition and police abolition, right? That's not something that you'll see over there. And that's not something people would consider to be like the fancy activism, but it's activism, mm -hmm. right? And I, I hate that visibility politics makes us seem like makes it seem like we're not doing the, the right kind of work or the right kind of activism, but that's not the case. Even if you, and this is what my grandfather used to say, God bless his soul, brilliant uh -huh. man. He used to say, even if you change one person's life or like even impact it a little bit, then, then, then you've done good. Mm. And I think that's amazing. I agree. It doesn't have to be in the limelight or quote unquote sexy or, you know, in order for yeah. it to be meaningful. I, I want to transition into a little bit more of uh, transformational justice in a moment. Um, but these circles also, and I don't know if you get a feel for the people who have participated, what happens afterwards, but how maybe do you imagine that this might impact their family or their community or their friends by just having the language and being able to share about it? How do they take that with them into their worlds? I don't expect them to speak to families, nor do I think anyone has, because like I said, the culture is such that families don't are not equipped to or are unable to or unwilling to deal with these mm -hmm. things. We also need to recognize that a lot of perpetrators are actually family members. Yes. 
So the harm done is by family members, so it's hard to bring that in, plus the culture of shame and everything. I do, however, think that they, they'll be able to just heal themselves. They won't be able to take it back to their families or maybe to friends they might. Maybe they'll have the language to speak to their friends about it and share their truth with other people and feel validated. But I, I hope that equipping them with these tools and languages and not languages, but this language and these words and terms can help them just commit to themselves and to healing themselves with the correct terminology. Or I, It sounds so weird when I say correct terminology. <laughs> it's like a scientific term. Um, but just a real word that mm-hmm. validates what they felt. Yeah. That's, I think, a starting point for, for healing. Yeah. And, and when they have the tools to heal themselves, I think even if it's not stated out loud, but that has a ripple effect on the people around them. Even if they never discuss it with their family, even if they never discuss it with their best friend, I feel like that's going to shift who they are and how they show up in the world. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. On the, when you and I had just spoken sort of in preparation for this uh, conversation on the phone, like a week ago, you had talked about what your feminist activism includes. And you, sh- you said it includes making sure that there are support networks for people who have committed harm too. Absolutely. So this I take from a lot of amazing, amazing work done by transformative justice leaders, particularly in the US. Uh, Mia Mingus, brilliant. Uh, the trans, what's it called? The San Francisco or the Bay Area Collective something. Amazing. There's like, a lot in the Bay Area. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, fuck yeah. Bay Area is amazing. <laughs> They do such good work anyway. And then they have the transformative justice collectives there and stuff. Um, I just read this book by Ruth Wilson, I think. It was Stories of Transformative Justice. Um, Some problems with it, but but good work, right? Just a good, like, stories of seeing how transformative justice is in action. And that's why I believe that, like, your feminism is, oh, it's going to sound so harsh and I might get so much hate for it, but I'll take Mm -hmm. it. Your feminism is incomplete if it doesn't recognize that transformative justice and prison abolition are core principles to all of us being free. Yes. <laughs> and we're so, and this is part of capitalism, right? I, I'm, I, I fuck capitalism, honestly. <laughs> um, capitalism is why prison systems are so flourishing. Capitalism is why incarceration, especially racial capitalism, is why uh, people of color, especially black people, are disproportionately incarcerated in, yeah. in the US, especially. Um, and we have this idea of disposability somehow mm-hmm. that, oh, if somebody does something bad, then a bad person, henceforth, they're out of my life. And we don't recognize there are cons- like causes for their behavior. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's going into a store and robbing you at gunpoint, have you ever wondered why they have to do that in the first place? Have you wondered why socialist countries that have universal basic income or good income levels have also lower crime rates and henceforth lesser prisons and they're moving towards even more humane prisons, even though I say fuck prisons in general, like even if they're humane or not. Um, There is no correlation between incarcerating someone and completely isolating them from a community of care and support Mm -hmm. and them somehow not committing any more crime. If I had to commit a crime to survive, 
I would fucking commit that crime. And if I was harmed and my worldview was shaped by harm, I would commit harm. Hmm. So just thinking that isolating people and putting them in prisons is going to change them without doing the real work is a cop-out. Your feminist activism has to recognize that harm doers have the capability of change and are deserving of change, primarily deserving of the community of care that allows them to change. Hmm. I, it's, it really, really hurts me to the core when you're so quick to dispose of someone, hmm. right? Just because they've done, not to take away from the harm that they've done, not to take away from how survivors and people who have done, been done harm to feel, because I do think they have an absolute say in how that process goes forward as well. They should be a part of this. But abandoning people who have done harm is is unthinkable for me. I want to point out that you as a survivor are advocating for support for people who have committed harm. Because I think the narrative sometimes is that people who are survivors only want vengeance, only want something harsh. And you're seeing that we are all interconnected. So not caring for everyone is going to only cause more harm and hurt, hurt people, hurt people. Your kind words are making it seem like I've always been this way. So (laughs) let me me clarify. I was not this way until a few years ago. Um, Because I've been harmed multiple times Mm -hmm. over my life, I used to be the kind of person who would be like, if these people were in front of me, I would, I would shoot them mm. like genuinely. Like I, I was so angry. I still am sometimes. It's hard to, you never completely forget or forgive like that, I think. Or maybe mm-hmm. you do. It's just that I'm not as big of a person yet. Mm. Maybe one day I'll be able to. But I, and, and I used to really, really say like, no, they deserve to go away. They deserve to be done harm to. I don't even want them to go to prison. I want them to have whatever they did to me done to them, mm. right? But then, and this I attribute completely to amazing feminist activists in Pakistan who encouraged me to think beyond this, encouraged a space in which we could all sit together and talk about these forms of justice as alternatives to the carceral systems. And God bless them. They are amazing. Uh, In those spaces, I was able to heal from the anger, maybe not from the drama, but heal from the anger to the Mm. extent where I could consider that, okay, let's look at the macro situation here. You live in a country where people are sex repressed. You live in a country where sex is demonized. You live in a country that hypersexualizes women while also mandating that you can't have sex with women before Mm. you get married. We live in a country that is not supportive of queerness. You live in a country that doesn't talk about consent. You live in a culture that actively incentivizes you to disregard consent through the media that you consume. If I grew up like that, Mm. I had the toxic masculinity ingrained into me or the toxicity in general ingrained into me from this culture, from the society, And not to say this is just in Pakistan, everywhere. Mm -hmm. All of these things are common everywhere. Would I really turn out any different? And largely the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Not to say that they have an excuse for what they did, but there is an explanation for what they did. Mm -hmm. And it's unfair for us to think 
that if you don't teach someone yeah. something that they're automatically just randomly going to come up to that solution right mm-hmm. i don't think we're good people because we're randomly good people i think we're good people because we had those teachings along the way and they influenced mm-hmm. us to be good people i mean not even saying that i'm a good person but i think <laughs> i have a long way to become a good person yeah. and the way to do that is to surround myself by people who i consider to be good people who can mm-hmm. then teach me more of how to be a good person so yeah um i was not always like this and i'm a little ashamed about it not going to lie now that i look back at it i am a little ashamed that i never really it took me that long to come to this but now i hardcore believe that there's there's no other future for us if we don't absolutely believe in transformative justice mm and I, you know once again giving yourself give yourself you're 24 years old i mean um i think who you are and how you're showing up in the world is very impressive and i'm also grateful that you shared that you you've reckoned with this anger that you didn't immediately jump to like oh let's just forgive and let's heal everyone yeah. <laughs> i think that's important because i'm sure there are a lot of people in their journey as survivors who are not there uh, yeah, who are still absolutely. in anger and that's or will continually be there or return to it and i think that's Okay, just to let everyone know wherever you are. Oh yeah, okay, which is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I thank you for saying that because I realized I didn't clearly say it. So just to reiterate, I have worked with survivors who are not ready to forgive their harmdoers, and fuck yes, absolutely. Just because I believe that those are my principles and that your feminism should be like this doesn't mean that you have to automatically be like this. Yeah. I will do everything that I can to help support you, and heal you. and create spaces for you but if you're not there yet and if you're angry and you should be angry because yeah. harm was done to you you don't owe anyone anything please remember that you don't owe anyone anything it's a long journey for us to realize that transformative justice is going to be necessary mm-hmm. and i know a lot of survivors have engaged in this work and have done wonderful wonderful work with their harm doers to heal from it but no absolutely not if you're a survivor or if you're anyone who's been done harm to and you're you're angry and you're not ready to reckon with that anger take your time mm. take your time yeah oh just take a deep breath there uh, <laughs> i i'm wondering so you're you know you're in grad school now you've moved to the us for a little while what are what are you envisioning like what and i i i almost like hate asking this question because sometimes it's okay just to be right where you are and not know but what do you see for yourself going forward what do you want oof oh that's hard <laughs> there's so much um i run a feminist magazine called behenchara which means sisterhood and i'm working on that with my founder who by the way misha if you're listening i hope you do and if you don't know my founder and editor in chief is misha farhana Misha Ali Farhana, badass artist, feminist, <laughs> raised by feminist parents, amazing human being, and dog mother. Oh, just <laughs> makes the best cartoon illustrations. Phenomenal human being, like actually phenomenal. She is the brain, the heart, the soul of Behen Chara magazine, and I am doing very little to support her right now <laughs> in the magazine. but that's part of the future as well i would like to get back to that once i go back and really work on 
because it's it has so much potential like so much potential and i really really want to work on that that's something that's in the works for me mm-hmm. i also want to come back and start doing the work that i wanted to do with chadar which was also to create a sustainable source of income for chadar mm-hmm. and to also create sustainable sources of income for other people especially survivors mm-hmm. uh hopefully with ironically chadars so like actually embroidering chadars and selling them and having good wage practices and fair labor practices that's something that i do want to work on um of of course continuing the volunteering that i do with orit march because that's a part of my heart and my soul and always will be and working on myself mm. um yeah <laughs> yeah my commitment to myself is is something that i've had a hard time with mm. growing up because of the insecurities that i had and struggling with an eating disorder and mental mm. health issues and everything Uh, whoever is listening to this you are seen you are heard you are valid you are amazing just because you struggle with this does not mean that you are any less than anyone else you are as capable and as amazing as everyone else and you will get through this and you mm. are worthy of help of seeking help um i just i used to joke about this like a few years ago but then i realized wait it's not a joke <laughs> i honestly do think that every day i wake up thinking that okay today i'm going to be a better person than I was yesterday and it's a hard hard thing mm. uh because all of us have the capability of being harm doers i also want to remind everyone of that mm. that we're we're so quick to assume that it's the other who's doing harm it's the monster who's doing harm and we forget no like we're humans we are capable of harm as well mm. in fact harm is inevitable it's how we process it it's how we forgive and forget and treat it with kindness and heal the harm or the cause of the harm so that's like i used to joke about it but like now it's like an actual commitment to myself i'm trying to be a better person and sometimes i fail not going to lie <laughs> sometimes i massively fail um but i don't know i'm trying yeah that's kind of the journey yeah that's that's honest and real and no risk taking in life is without failure so that's part yeah. of it part of innovation part of growth part of self discovery allowing yourself to be in all phases of that uh and you mentioned the the othering that everyone is capable of committing harm and i think that's why i used the word disposability before too we can dispose yes. of people because we see them as an other we don't see them as part of ourselves or something that like finding our familiar finding ourselves in in others um I mean I feel I have I have I have a little lightning round for you in a moment. Which will always be a little playful, but and I you know, I could talk to you for a really long time and I know we only scratched the surface, but before we move into the lightning round, I just want to give you any final space to share anything that you feel like is is pressing or needs to be said that I didn't ask about or that needs to come out before we move to the lightning round. Oh, um if I have the platform then I would just say um please look into Aurat March A U R A T and M A R C H. They do amazing work in Pakistan. Uh there are different chapters there. They are genuinely genuinely working on helping communities who need the help. They're doing activism that is actual activism. um i miss them and i wish i could be part of it but i'm not because i'm here and i i don't have the capacity to help them right now but they deserve the support that they get because they actually actively work um just going to shamelessly plug behen chara again you should yeah good work uh please support it 
Um, and right now, there's a lot happening in Afghanistan, mm. um, which has been very heavy for a lot of us, especially because I'm from a Shia community. And it's scary to think about what would happen if the Taliban got into my country. And, mm. you know, it's very violent and my minority is not safe back home. None, no minority is. Mm. So I would just say donate if you can. Um, there are some good organizations trying to get refugees out. Uh, look into refugee policies, call, email, fax, whatever you can, your local uh, legislators and spokespersons and uh, governors or whoever offices that you have and ask them what their response will be to refugee crises, how they can help, if they can create like a fundraising in your city or your town or whatever you are. Um, because there's a lot happening in the world. And right now, I think Afghanistan is one of the countries that definitely needs our help. It's okay if you don't have a specific answer to this, but you said donate. Or is there any organization in mind that you have that perhaps people can Ooh. donate to? Interesting. Um, I, if you don't mind, let me just look into it here. Of course, yeah. Because uh, I remember a lot of people were sharing it in this one particular group of activists. Um, there are lawyers that you can definitely donate to okay. uh, who might help people get out. And if you even wanted to send, you can send this I can to send me afterwards. Links, actually. Yeah, and then I could, I could add them into the show notes so people can find this all in the show oh, notes. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah, because, okay. Oh, there's crisisrelief.un.org slash Afghanistan, which okay. is a really, really good place that you can donate to. Wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, so people can know what to do and you can still, any links you want to send, I'll make sure those are in the I show will. notes. So yeah. Um, all right. We're going to transition now. Are you ready for the lightning round? Absolutely. Hit me, hit me. <laughs> um, okay. So this, you know, you've been here in the U S for eight months. What has been the biggest surprise about moving here, living here? The bugs. Oh my God. Georgia has so many bugs. This literally like an hour ago, I was taking a shower and a huge spider was just oh. hanging out. I'm like, how are you real? The frogs, there was a frog on a wall here. Oh my God. I've never seen a frog on a wall. It was a green frog on a wall. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> now, my response in these situations is to like scream like a child. Oh, what absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Do you have someone who could like take the frog out or, or is this you in charge yourself? Like you have roommates or? Oh, my roommate's great. Um, okay. But so far I've been dealing. One thing, if I see a cockroach, I will spontaneously combust. You will never hear from me again. <laughs> I am terrified of big cockroaches. Yes. Um, so in that case, I ask my friends to help and I'm like, I'm going to go. You're going to handle this. I, I completely, that is my, I lived in New York City for a while. And I remember the first time I was oh. living on my own there and ha there was a cockroach. Oh, I like screamed and oh, it was not good. There was a rain boot. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel you on that. Okay. Interesting question, uh, answer. Um, and I feel like this next question probably could have a really long list for the answer, but what do most Americans get wrong about Pakistan? Oh, <laughs> Everything. number one. They don't even know what Pakistan is. I always uh, get, are you from India? And I'm uh, like, no. Um, everything. They're like, oh, you speak such good English. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, is that meant to be a compliment? Because hello, colonization. Um, the British literally colonized us for like a hundred years, which yeah. is why we have education systems that rely on English language. Mm. Um, also, like people are just, 
hella racist. So racist. Not even funny kind of racist, but yeah, they get a lot of things wrong about Pakistan. I was just going to say, I'm sure, you know, most of us cannot point to it on a map, which is part of the problem. And then also you're, you know, with the language besides the colonization, but here, many of us speak only English, you know, just sort of yep. entitled and privileged and, you know, oh, like, yeah. what do you mean other people speak other languages or have to oh, know yeah. other languages? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so you had mentioned before, I believe in undergrad, you were a double major in English literature and philosophy. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, you know, that English literature part of it, I was an English major in college as well. Uh, yeah. So whose writing are you into? Or like, what books do you love reading? Yo, so I was like a huge classics nerd as a kid. Ooh. Like, I remember I was like in fifth grade and I read all of Dickens. <laughs> I was like, me too, as a little kid. I yeah, was, really I was such yeah. a nerd. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't read that much now. Yeah. But I was just like really into all kinds of books that I could get my hands mm. on. Um, mostly, if I'm not wrong, I, I really liked like classics, like just yeah. like, fiction. I was always into fiction. Okay. I, I don't fuck with like nonfiction. Like I, sorry, no. <laughs> I love writing nonfiction and I get enough of that like theory and nonfiction in my discipline. Right. I can't deal with that. But I don't know. I used to love Khalid Hosseini is great. Mohsen Hamid is great. Um, a lot of like Desi writers or South Asian writers are great in in Western world. I don't really know. Uh, a lot of okay, writers. you don't have to have an answer for the Western world. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're wonderful. I'm sure. <laughs> um, this one's just for fun. The last TV show you binged and loved. Oh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, I've only seen like a very little bit of it but if you recommend it it, I'm gonna have to go back and check the whole thing out (laughs) so oh my god I'm not explaining it's so good because (laughs) it's actively feminist and onto actively anti-feminist and it's real Mm -hmm. like it shows you it's real like and you can understand that the problematic it's just real I don't know I would say (laughs) watch it please watch it it's a great show um Shit's Creek is also great okay all right a few a few good shout outs there for us to check out um the the next one is the thing that would surprise most people about you the thing that would surprise most people about me Ooh, I'm just an open book I was just about to say you strike me as an open book so I don't know if we have an answer for that one yeah, I, have a, I have a very open book um maybe that oh okay interesting so I love art, as you can see, but not like those fancy pretentious art, but just like things that look nice to me. Um, I actually failed art in fifth grade. I was the only... What th- happened in the oh, class? Because we had an exam that the total thing would be 100 and I got like a 40 something on it. It was in red because I failed. I have never heard of anyone else who has failed art ever. Um, and that's... Uh, because I was trying to draw oh my god I'm so sorry whoever my teacher was I'm so sorry for you to have to grade that I was trying to draw a scene of um uh like we it's like a cafeteria but we used to call it a canteen uh, of a canteen from memory but I had no idea how space works (laughs) right so my lines were jagged and it ended up looking like a really weird like stain on the floor (laughs) and I just submitted it because uh, yeah so I failed art um yeah judge me all you want yo 
I, I think you you're you know you're doing okay in life that sounds like a really intense art class though because what I remember from fifth grade art here was like check you did it like you tried <laughs> oh no no I failed failed like I remember looking at it and be like what can somebody even fail art but apparently you can and I well, did you've learned from your failures I guess I don't know <laughs> oh I still suck at art look at, look at you now so whatever even if you can't draw that's fine you have other gifts um okay I've got two more for you the next one is what makes you laugh oh what's make me laugh what makes me laugh I laugh at myself all the time oh that's good because I'm hilarious I think I'm hilarious <laughs> genuinely um and I laugh at like so I m- my partner is wonderful I laugh at him all the time he's hilarious oh. uh, my friends are hilarious I I laugh at dogs and cats too they're adorable like, oh and yeah I miss my dog moment. so much you, it'll be a serious situation I'll see a dog and I'll start giggling Right. I'll be like, oh, I want to pet him. Like, if I'm a creep who goes up to people and says, hey, can I pet your dog? And they're like looking at me like, what is this random brown girl doing here? Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what makes me laugh. I think, you know, as a young woman, perhaps you can get away with it more. I always see my dad who's in his 60s, this like white man in his 60s. He doesn't realize it, but he's taught like young women are walking their dogs and I'll be like, hey, cutie, oh. to the dog. But I'm like, oh, oh my God. God, I keep telling him, I'm like, dad. Like women are going to be totally creeped out by you. You need to stop doing these. Like I'm talking to the dog, and I'm like, no, they don't know that. Like you're an they old white man. That. You need exactly. to stop right now. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's all. Of, that's just like a mutual reaction. You see a dog, and it's just like, you're like I will die for you. I will die for you. You random dog that I will never see again. I will right. die. For you. Especially when you're missing your own dog. So that's very oh, valid. Yeah. So we're going to get a little bit more serious for the last one. I don't know if serious is the word, but. What are you most grateful for in this moment? Oh, wow. Being here. Mm. Um, I never, ever imagined that I would be able to get a scholarship that does not let me or does not have me pay even a penny. Mm. Um, And also study in another country Mm. and just be here and just take care of myself, be on my own. Not even, I could not have imagined that I would ever get that opportunity. And I'm here mm-hmm. and I'm very, very grateful. Um, the Fulbright Scholarship is how I got here in the first yeah. place. And I'm very, very happy that I get to be here and just experience, experience life to the fullest and just yeah. enjoy myself. Mm. Yeah, you have a beautiful smile as you're saying that just enjoy yourself. And really I feel happy. like, yeah, just... I love that you're exploring the world and yourself and asking questions and making connections. I feel like that's what we're here for on this planet. Absolutely. And, and that's, and that's what you're doing. Uh, you are just like a riot. You are just, I'm, I just love you. I'm so grateful. We got to talk. I love you. Oh my God. <laughs> Have you met yourself? You're amazing. Oh, see, this is talking with sisterhood. This is, this is what it's about. We're fangirling. Um, so yeah, no, I, I hope uh, we're definitely, you know, we're gonna have to stay in touch, obviously. Absolutely. <laughs> and I just can't wait to watch uh, how you grow in the world and what you continue to create and just be. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm sending best wishes and love and solidarity for your podcast because it's Aww. it's amazing. Oh. <laughs> mutual. The love is mutual. <laughs> <Excellent>. Okay. <laughs> 
shed so many tears that my tear dots turn red. Now that hemoglobin flowing, keeping vampires fed. They wanted to jam me in, lock me up and throw away the key. A pack of hyenas, he he laughing at me. They took many shortcuts by backstabbing me. If I don't get out they grip, then these vultures won't dip. I ain't afraid to die and fly off to the sky. But I got more life to live, so today I'm gonna try to strive. Not to hide behind my fears, hide behind the years, and hide behind these tears. Lord, please take away all these imperfections. Renovate my heart and purify my soul. Do to me what I do to my floors when I sand them. If you open up them doors for me, I won't be too demanding. Your truth, love, and light is what I always stand in. I'm your fierce, humble servant, just like you commanded. I got faith. 